talking about, he's saying, look, I don't judge the son on the father's sin. I judge the son on his own sin and the father on his own sin. And that's an important distinction to remember. So Exodus 20 verse 5 is one of the areas where this is going to come from or these ideas. Exodus 25, he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. So God does not uh, go for any uh, suitors to your heart. This should not be hard for us to understand. We've talked about this before. Neither do you. No one who's going to, for marriage, a husband or wife, says, well, I'm cool with you being my wife, but you can also date other guys. Nobody says that, do they? Well, the, the ones who do don't have any comprehension of what marriage is all about. All right? The, the other side, nor the other side, right? We, we want faithfulness, and so does God. He says, I am a jealous God. In fact, the Lord goes so far to declare his name is jealous. God wants us to understand that the relationship that we have with him is totally monogamous. It's all him. He's the only God. The Bible talks about a young man. We've said it many times. David. What does the Bible call David? A man how? A man after God's own heart. What made David a man after God's own heart? If you'll study the life of David, it won't be his perfection. It won't be the fact that he didn't sin or that he didn't mess up or he didn't ever lie or he didn't ever do things he wasn't supposed to do. But there's one thing David never did. He never participated in idolatry. So God would say of David, he has a whole heart toward me. Which the Bible says to love the Lord your God with what? Oh. Now I know sometimes we think, well, I don't know. I mean, if I can ever really love anything with all my heart. The point is that your heart's not divided. For them, idolatry meant I love God and I love Baal, who is in direct opposition to God, or Ashtoreth, or any slew of other gods that were around at the time. And their idolatry to the Lord was unfaithfulness. And God wants them to know, this. I'm not going to tolerate it. You're my bride, is what the Lord said, the Lord God said to Israel. Does that sound familiar? Did anybody else ever say that? Is Jesus, what does Jesus call the church? Yeah, the bride of Christ. In the Old Testament, Israel was called the wife of God. Unfaithful, but the wife of God. So as we look at Exodus 25, he's talking specifically about idolatry. And look what he says. For I, the Lord, your God, am jealous, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And so we develop a concept called generational curse. And we start to use a proverb that says, my father sinned and God is judging me for it. But we're not paying attention to the scripture. Because what the scripture says, the Lord says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. What's that last phrase? Of those who hate me. 
So for the Lord, if you love him with your whole heart, you're not an idolater. If you are an idolater, the Lord is not going to forget your sin. Now you have a group of people sitting in a refugee camp hearing Ezekiel talk about this. And when Ezekiel talks about it, they know the proverb. Yep, it was our fathers. You know, they're looking back and they're saying Manasseh was a really bad king. And he killed his own children and he used them to build his palace. And, and he led us into all sorts of idolatry. The distinction that you need to remember is they were guilty of idolatry too. Are you tracking with me? This is not God judging someone for a father's sin when they're not guilty. What were the exiles? Were they guilty of idolatry? For sure. They were, in fact, Ezekiel earlier gave us a prophecy about their idolatry while they're in the refugee camp. So it's not, it's not purified yet. It's not cured. So he's laying out this idea. Look, you need to stop with the idea that God is somehow judging you for someone else's sin. But at the same time, the Bible does teach us this truth. Your sin will affect the innocent. That's not God's judgment. Those are consequences to our choices, our sin, right? There's an effect greater than ourselves. If I throw a pebble <clears throat> into a pond, the ripples go all the way across the pond, right? All I did was throw in a pebble, but it affected everything around. Every, there's an effect that flows through, and that's true. There is an effect, but you, ladies and gentlemen, are responsible for your sin. That's what you will answer to God for. Not your dad's sin, yours. Not someone else's sin, not someone else's failure. It's never going to work to stand before God and blame someone else. I spent <clears throat> 13 years uh, as mad at God as I have ever been at any person I could touch. And I was angry at God for what God allowed to happen in my family. Ultimately, I'm probably transferring anger to my father onto God and ultimately affecting my own life while I rebel as hard as I can against the Lord. But that wasn't my dad's sin. That was mine. And when I stand before God, I will not be able to say, God, you're judging me for my dad's sin. No, the Lord's going to say, your dad was not there, but you were. Your father made his choices for which, you know, he'll have his day before the Lord. But the, the Lord does not <clears throat> visit the iniquity of the fathers in judgment upon the sons who are innocent of sin. But to those who hate me, to those who follow. Now, what's the likelihood of a, fa of a child following his father's pattern of sin? Pretty good, right? I, I have a saying, the apple doesn't fall far from a tree. You guys know what that means, right? Every time I look at my <clears throat> little grandson and I see a particular attitude out of him, I can say, oh, I've seen that before. He gets that from his grandma. 
<coughs> Why does everybody laugh when I tell that? Yeah, no, you guys know better. That stuff comes from me. Listen to what else uh, the Lord said in Exodus 34, 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? He's talking about the Lord, right? He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the, of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So you have the concept in scripture, right? That, that there's something that's following from fathers to son, and God is going to bring that, uh, that judgment in, in that condition from one to the other. But here's how we, we can't make a leap and say the innocent are being judged. God just said, I, I won't let the guilty go. And neither will he charge the innocent. You see, the scripture also tells in Deuteronomy 24, 16, that the fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one will be put to death for his own sin. Now, the point is, we all stand guilty before God. Don't we? we? We find our guilt before him because there are none of us for whom we can say, while you may not be guilty of the same sin, you are guilty of sin. And God as the ultimate judge is so merciful and good because I'm reminded you will track with me a time when Abraham is out Lot has left him he's dwelling in a place called Sodom and uh, Abraham sees a visitor he runs out turns out it's the Lord and, and a couple of angels and they're going on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy the city because of sin you remember the deals that Abraham made with God A lot of times we want to focus in on God's judgment and we forget his mercy is greater. So Abraham said, but Lord, what if there's 50 righteous there? Will you destroy the city? You remember what God said? For the sake of 50 righteous, I will not destroy the city. What about 40, 30, 20, 10? What did God say? For the sake of 10. I will not destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. So for the sake of 10 righteous souls, God is willing to forestall judgment. We call that mercy. We describe that as God's grace. And you have pictures of it throughout Old Testament scriptures. 
So when God brings his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, what does that indicate? There wasn't ten righteous. They weren't there. Yet for the sake of ten, God would have brought his mercy. So the Lord's going to describe this. He's going he's to describe to the children of Israel through Ezekiel what it is. What is he talking about? Look at it. Ezekiel 18 verse 5. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. So the first thing he lays out, he's talking about if a man is devoted to God and not having a divided heart. What does it mean to eat upon the mountains? It means to go to the high places. You've heard this phrase before in the Old Testament. The high places were places of worshiping other gods. So he doesn't eat upon the mountains. It doesn't mean you don't have a picnic out on the mountain. It means that you're not going to the high places and celebrating the feast days of the other gods, of the false gods. You're not out there worshiping them nor are you lifting your eyes. Psalm tells us where we lift our eyes. Where does your help come from? I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? And then what does he say? My help comes from you, maker of heaven and earth. The point is that we understand where our help comes from, not from idols. So the first two is he's, he's saying, look, you want to know a man that's righteous, does what is just and right, he's devoted to God. He's devoted to God. His heart's not divided with false gods, with other, with other idols. The second thing he's devoted to is his marriage. Why does God care about marriage? You ever think about it? Because marriage is one of the institutions we have that God brought. Man didn't bring it. Man didn't invent it. God did. And in the book of Genesis, we read, God brought the first bride to the groom, right? He made Eve, brought her to Adam. We've done it that way ever since. The father brings the bride to the groom because it is a picture of God's character. Marriage is a picture of God's character. Why does God condemn homosexual marriage? Because it defiles the picture. It's not the same. It's not father and father. It is a picture of the father and the son. And when they're united in marriage beneath the chuppah, that's the presence of the Holy Spirit, uniting them together. Marriage provides a picture of the character of God. And the reason the enemy hates it is because it provides a picture of the character of God. So what does the world want to do? It wants to destroy it, tear it apart, shred it, obliterate it, treat it lightly. Oh, it doesn't matter. None of this matters. You know, and that's the world we find ourselves in today. But the state had no say over marriage. God did it in Genesis chapter 3. God laid it out. God brought the, the husband and wife together. So look at the devotion to marriage. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. So when we talk about his devotion to marriage, he's faithful. Is that also a picture of the faithfulness of men to God? For sure it is. Absolutely it is. So in our marriage, we're to be faithful, right? 
were to be faithful. Does not defile his wife's neighbor or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity. Now, people have stumbled over this for, for decades. I imagine they will stumble over it for decades to come. But I would say that there is uh, symbolism in what is happening within a woman that is uh, the rejection of life. There's no life in the womb, so the menstrual period comes. And as a result, because God is a God of life, he says, withdraw for a time and come back together. God's purpose is always a purpose surrounding life, not death or the lack of and so he is saying, withdraw, withdraw yourself for a time. And that is not just being faithful to your spouse. It is in your marriage being faithful to God. Doesn't matter. We've talked about this before. If the God who made you said, I don't ever want you to wear blue again. Then who are you to say, why can't I wear blue? Who cares? Your maker said, what? Don't wear blue. Don't wear blue. Lay that aside. But we have here in marriage a picture of the character of God. And I would, I would say, I, I, I don't want to push it too far. There's, there's lots of crazy roads I run down that I don't share with you guys all the time. But I would say that there is something in the characteristics of that that point to the cross of Jesus Christ. And the concept that the father and the son, there was a point there while Christ was dying on the cross where Jesus was proclaiming from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we will wonder for the rest of our lives how a God who has never known separation between father, son, and spirit was separated. How was their distance? How did that happen? And what? What did that do? But again, I would say marriage is a picture that we have that represents character of God. And that's why to God, marriage matters to him. The next thing he's going to talk about, not only our faithfulness and devotion to God and to our marriage, but he also is going to say a righteous man understands the proper economic attitude. What do you think? In the United States, do we have a proper economic attitude according to God? You're probably not going out on a limb too far by saying no. But let's look at the direction the Lord gives for the proper economic attitude. Verse 7, he does not oppress anyone. He restores to the debtor his pledge. That means he pays his debt. He commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment. He does not lend at interest, nor take any profit. This is the economic attitude that God points to in Ezekiel and says, this is a righteous economic attitude. Now, obviously, this is to his brethren, right? This is within the, the nation of Israel. This is how they were to conduct things with one another. The concept of charging interest was to your brother. You couldn't charge your brother. 
a Gentile come in and wanted to borrow money, and he agreed to the terms. He agreed to the terms. But you were not allowed to charge your brother interest. So the, the attitude that God wants a righteous man to have, this is the proper attitude economically. He does not bring oppression on others. <clears throat> he restores. He pays his debt. He restores to the debtor what he promised, right? You know that paper we signed when I said I would make way too many payments for way too long a period of time? But the Lord doesn't care. He just says what? Pay the debt. Pay the debt that you pledged to pay. He commits no robbery. That's Robbery is always uh, speaking of uh, through uh, strength of arms. He gives his bread to the hungry. So he cares about the hungry, right? He's providing for the hungry and he's providing for the naked. The naked get clothed. Uh, again, speaking of those impoverished, does not land at interest nor take profit. So this is the attitude God wants us to have economically. And then he has the attitude of us spiritually. What, what does our spiritual dedication look like? Well, look what he says. He withholds his hand from injustice. So I would probably go so far as to say, I don't know how you don't break that regardless of political party you're affiliated with. He does not. He withholds his hand from injustice. Whether it's oppression or outright death of the innocent, irregardless, he says that if you're going to stand spiritually dedicated, then... You're not giving your hand. You're not giving your support to injustice. He executes true justice between man and man. He walks in my statutes, keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall live, declares the Lord. So God says this is the picture of the righteous man. And we're not talking about eternal life, position, being approved of God or not approved of God. We're just talking about living life. Living life, remember the, remember the proverb, if I'm, I'm suffering from my father's sin. So the Lord says this is what righteousness looks like. These are the principles that will bring blessing. So what brings the condemnation? Well, we see it in verse 10. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who eats on the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore his pledge, lifts up his eyes to idols, commits abomination, lends at interest, takes profit. Shall he then live? The Lord says no. In other words, God's saying, will I not judge that? Is that not unrighteous? The Lord is saying, no, that's unrighteous. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die, and his blood will be upon himself. Whatever judgment comes from God in that regard, you have earned. Earning that judgment upon yourself. For what guilt? Violent iniquity, marital infidelity, and economic indifference. You only cared about yourself. So, he gives us the other side of that picture. Now, suppose... This man, so you had a man who was righteous, fathered a son who was violent. God said the violent one 
is guilty and, and worthy of his judgment, right? And then he's now going to say, now he, this man, fathers a son. So the wicked man fathers a son who sees all the sins his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat on the mountains, lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry. He covers the naked with a garment. He withholds his hand uh, from iniquity. He takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules, walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall live. God's saying the judgment that comes upon the father is not being poured out upon the son. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So God is saying the soul that sins shall die. The soul that sins. Now, every time we talk about this, that we run the danger of starting to think that we're one of those two righteous guys. So how much of the law do we have to break to be considered a lawbreaker? So when the people were saying to God, they're sitting in a refugee camp and they're saying, the reason we're in this refugee camp is because God's judging our fathers. And God is saying, I'm not judging your fathers. Or I'm not only judging your father. You're guilty. One of the biggest struggles that people have in learning to walk with God and understand God is to recognize their own guilt. One of the hardest things to overcome is having looked in a mirror Okay, let's call it a morality mirror or a spiritual mirror. To have looked in the spiritual mirror and seen who you are. James talks about this. It's like a man who looked in a mirror and saw the dirt on his face and he turns away from the mirror and forgets what manner of man he is. If we can't look honestly at the mirror and then recognize what I need, because God's going to declare in a moment at the end of the chapter, he's going to declare why should you die? He's telling that to the wicked father or the wicked son or everybody wicked in between. He says, why should you die? Repent and what? And live. People struggle so hard with that. Well, I'll tell you what we're really good at. We're really good at holding that mirror up for someone else and showing them all their garbage. You, and you are pretty wicked too, and you too. I can't believe how wicked you guys are. But we're not so good at honestly recognizing our own guilt before God in the mirror and understanding the path of life that God calls us to as a result. Well, look what he goes on to say. So he's, he's laying this out. Look, I want you guys to understand, I'm not doing it i'm not judging the the i'm not bringing a guilty charge to the not guilty to the innocent there's not a guilty charge coming but verse 19 he says yet you say 
Why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The soul that sins shall die. Now there's a lot of scripture that talks about the souls that sin. Do you think that there is one of which that's not true? Like everybody else's soul that sins, they're guilty. But my soul, I haven't sinned in years. Oh, well, you just did. That's called pride. <laughs> no? So he's saying the soul who sins shall die. The son will not suffer the iniquity of the father. The father suffered the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. But here's the whole point. So we sometimes will get so focused on the generational aspects and, and what's poured out on one and what's not poured out on the other and what's this all mean. If we, if we can recognize the reality that what he's laying out for us is that we're all guilty and we, we all deserve God's judgment, and it's God's mercy and grace that we don't receive God's judgment, then when we hear his plea, we'll understand what to do about it. What do I do about my situation, Lord? He says in verse 21, But if a wicked man turns away from all his sins that he has committed, and he keeps all my statutes and does what is right, he shall surely live and not die. What do we call that? As repentance. As repentance. Repentance is to change your mind. Change your direction. I all thought all these years this was okay. But now I recognize this is not okay. So I need to turn away from that and I need to turn toward the Lord. This is what repentance looks for. He says he shall live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered. Well, that's pretty graceful, no? None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. The righteousness that he has done what's the righteous act that he has done what is it that jesus teaches us well jesus teaches us that righteous act what must i do to do the works of god jesus was asked what must i do jesus said believe in him whom the father has sent this is the righteous act faith in christ in the old testament it was faith in Christ who had not come yet. It was faith in Christ looking forward. For you and I, it's faith in Christ doing what? Looking backward. But it's still the same faith. Faith in God's provision of righteousness to those who put their trust in him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Now listen, this is going to be an important phrase to remember. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? That's called a rhetorical question, which demands a negative answer. There are some people who will say that 
God is glorified in the destruction of the wicked. But the Lord is saying here, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, or rather that he should turn from his way and live? What glorifies God to the greatest extent? The soul that turns to Christ or the soul that rejects him? The Lord says, the soul that turns, the one that lives. What, how does he describe it? What happens in heaven when one sinner turns? When one sinner repents, it says uh, the angels rejoice, right? There's rejoicing in heaven because what? Uh, a, a soul that is was destined for destruction is now destined for life. And so the Lord rejoices. I would rather, this is how I read this, I would rather the wicked repent and live than the wicked go on and meet my wrath. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? The Lord's saying, if you turn away from your righteousness, so shall, shall that just be a pass? When the righteous person repents of his righteousness and walks in wickedness, none of the righteous deeds he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. Turning away, unrighteousness, the righteous turning from the Lord brings God's judgment. The unrighteous turning toward the Lord brings God's blessing, right? His grace, his mercy. So what's the, what is the point he's laying out for us? Well, the Lord says, well, you say the way of the Lord is not just. So here now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for the injustice he has done. He shall die. This is, he's talking about, this whole section, guys, talking about physical death and judgment from God. So where we are importing the idea of eternal, he's not talking about eternal salvation. He's not talking about relationship with God. He's saying, if the wicked do wickedly, they're judged. If the righteous do wickedly, they're judged. If the wicked turn and turn toward God, they have grace and mercy. If the righteous who turn wicked turn back to the Lord, they have the same thing, right? So God's question is, am I unjust for judging in this way? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it, for the injustice he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from his wickedness, he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from the transgression he had committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. 
Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. <coughs> Everyone according to his ways declares the Lord God. So here's what God is saying. The people in refugee camps are saying, we're here not because of our sin, because we're basically righteous people. The nation of Israel is righteous, and all the other people in the world, they're wicked. And God is not just because he's judging us for the sins of our father, and so we find ourselves in this unjust place. And the Lord is saying, no, no, that's not how that works. You're here for your wickedness, for, for your folly, for your choice to rebel against the Lord, not because somebody else did, not because it's somebody else's fault. It, still today, we have endless conversations like this. If you have children, if I, in fact, if, even if I don't take kids, if I go Peter and John, you remember those two guys, right? Peter, when you're old, men are going to take you where you don't want to go. And they'll stretch you out. And Jesus spoke these things regarding the way in which Peter was going to die. So ultimately, God speaking to Peter is telling Peter, one day they're going to crucify you like they crucified me. What was Peter's concern? What about John? If I get crucified, he does too, right? You remember what Jesus said? If, if, uh, if I want John to live until I return, what's that to you? You come follow me. The point is our, our walk with, with God, our individual walk with God is focused on me and him and my path and my road and what God's calling me to and my sin and my transgressions and my struggles, and none of that depends on Peter, James, or John. That's all Jackie's. And if I am spending my time looking around, oh, how come they're getting off? How come I'm suffering and they're okay? I'm missing the boat because this is my pursuit of Christ, and my road may not look like your road. And your road may not look like my road, but what God is saying is no matter what road you're on, I'm just. I'm not unjust. In fact, I would go so far as to say, not only is God not unjust, he's tremendously merciful. And if we can't see God's mercy, then we're not seeing properly. We're not seeing God's heart. We're not seeing God's purpose in our lives. I remember, sometimes I still get that way. I get the poor pitiful me's. I'm sure you guys don't struggle with that, but occasionally that'll happen to me, and I'll find myself thinking about, well, how come this has happened to me? How come, you know, somebody, something good happens to somebody, and I think, dang, I wish something good like that would, would happen to me. You guys don't ever feel like that? You guys don't ever do that? And I remind myself of how many blessings and how how 
how much God has been with me, and I need to really focus. I need to really focus on my relationship with God, not a corporate ideal, me, where I'm walking with him, where God is leading me. Listen, here's what the Lord says at the end here in verse 30. Uh, He says, therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways. Repent and turn from your transgression, lest iniquity be your ruin. So the point is not to say, well, then, you know, it doesn't matter what I live or what I do or what choice I make. No, the Lord said, look, let's live a life of confession and repentance and trusting in me for your deliverance from sin and through sin, from the beginning of your journey to the end of your journey. And the Lord saying, and you'll be just fine. You're going to be okay. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Listen to these words. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Sounds like you have an ability to respond before God, no? I have no glory in the destruction of the wicked. I am not rejoicing, no pleasure over the death of any, declares the Lord God. So what is God telling his people who are perishing? You don't have to perish, right? Just repent and live. And that's the message that God wants his people to understand. That's the amazing grace of God. That's the incredible mercy of God. That is why the Lord is my salvation. That is is why we sing the songs we sing and we do the things we do because God has made that provision for us. So we don't have to spend our time looking at the failures of everyone else. If we'll look into the mirror of God's word, Apply God's direction. What is God asking me to do? Why does he tell me I'm a wretch? Why does he tell me I'm a sinner? So I'll do what? Cast off my sin and reach out for him. And then the Lord God responds with his mercy. Aren't you glad his mercy is new every morning? Yeah, me too. I pretty much need it every morning. Why don't you guys stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for the opportunity uh, to delve into your word, God, to begin to wrestle with some of the ideas there in Ezekiel 18, God, to recognize, Lord, the things that you're challenging us with. Maybe I have had that attitude, God, where where I think, oh man, my life's not fair. The things that are happening to me, why am I in this refugee camp? How come I didn't get to stay in Jerusalem? But God, you you want us to recognize, oh, you are where you are today as a result of your sin, as I'm here as a result of my sin. And what God is asking for from me is an attitude that says, I'm not going to justify my sin. I just want to say, God, forgive me. I want to confess. I want to live a life of confession and repentance 
turning from my sin, turning to the glory of God, recognizing all that, that God has for us, the things that we can that we can experience in him. God, I just, I, I pray that today we would um, just be challenged and consider the truth that God's word declares. That we would want the relationship you're crying for. Oh, Israel, why would you die? I think you could say, oh, world, why would you die? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Teach us to turn our eyes toward you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.